Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. A 2023 nationally representative survey of 1,000 American adults conducted by YouGov asked people whether their ideal romantic relationship would be monogamous or non-monogamous. A majority said that their ideal relationship would be completely monogamous, but a sizable minority, 34% to be exact, described their ideal relationship as involving some form of non-monogamy. This survey further inquired about people's attitudes toward various forms of non-monogamy and found that most Americans tend to view it negatively, no matter what form it takes, whether that's an open relationship, swinging, or polyamory. So why are so many people so unaccepting of people who choose to practice non-monogamy? In part, it's because they're operating under a number of common misconceptions. For example, a popular stereotype about open relationships is that the only reason people do it is because their relationship is failing. Likewise, a lot of people think non-monogamous relationships just can't work, that it's inherently risky for one's health, and that non-monogamous people make unfit parents. So what's the truth here? Let's take a look at what the science behind consensual non-monogamy has actually found. For today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Amy Moores, an assistant professor of psychology at Chapman University. Her research focuses on sexuality, consensually non-monogamous relationships, and LGBTQ issues. Amy has published more than 55 journal articles and book chapters and has received several awards for her pioneering research on polyamory. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around and we're gonna jump in right after the break. Are you in a polyamorous relationship? Researchers at Ball State University are currently recruiting polyamorous individuals for a study of relationships. In order to participate, you need to be 18 years of age or older, identify as polyamorous, and currently be involved in at least one polyamorous relationship. If you agree to participate, you will be asked to complete a survey about your relationship beliefs and experiences. This survey takes no more than 45 minutes, and you will have an equal opportunity to receive one of 40 $25 gift cards for your voluntary participation. If you meet the criteria and are interested in participating, you can find the link in the show notes or visit bit.ly slash polyamstudy. That's bit.ly slash polyamstudy. Thank you for contributing to Sex and Relationship Science. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Hi, Amy, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Justin. Thank you so much for joining me. So we're going to be talking about consensual non-monogamy today, specifically the things that people get wrong about it. Before we get into that, though, let me first ask how you got into studying consensual non-monogamy in the first place. And I ask this because when you started working in this area as a graduate student, 
it was considered to be more of a fringe topic in the field. And a lot of advisors would have said to steer clear of it because it's controversial and you can't get funding for it. So at the time, it was a riskier thing to study. But thanks to your work and that of your colleagues, things have changed. What drew you to this topic? Oh, thanks for that. Because people did think I was bananas for probably studying this topic. And I was told it was career suicide by multiple people. But my interest really started in my master's degree, this fine institution that you and I both graduated from, Villanova. And I was doing a project on same-sex sexuality and desire and to get around an IRB issue of not being able to ask about people's sexual orientation. I asked them to describe the type of relationship that they were in in their partner. Partners, and then I recruited on queer and LGBTQ listservs. And because I asked that question in that way, I had quite a few people describe multiple partners. And that was actually the first time I heard the word polyamory. I was familiar with swinging. I was familiar with open relationships. And something really struck me that it seems like it might be common that at least queer people are doing this. And like any good master's student, I went to PsychInfo and, you know, the database to understand what research was out there related to these types of non-monogamy and just a few articles appeared. And I just felt like I was onto something and I still do. <laughs> and <laughs> 13 years later, you know, this has become my main area of inquiry and has given me so much fulfillment. And I just, I I love studying consensual non-monogamy. I love that story, but I still think it's so bonkers that the IRB wouldn't allow you to ask about sexual orientation on a survey, right? Because that seems like a pretty standard demographic question today. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the challenges sometimes with doing some of this research is that there are limitations imposed on the kinds of questions that you can ask when you're a sexuality researcher. So I'm glad you found a creative way to work around that and that you really helped to bring light to this area that not a lot of people were talking about back then. I mean, when I was in graduate school, we didn't talk about consensual non-monogamy at all. You know, the assumption with every theory was that everybody is monogamous or wants to be monogamous. And if they're with more than one partner, well, that means they're cheating, right? So consensual non-monogamy and non-consensual non-monogamy all got lumped in together. Right. Okay, let's talk misconceptions about consensual non-monogamy. You recently published a paper exploring five common misconceptions, so we're going to try and get through as many of them as we can today. The first one is that there's a certain type of person who engages in consensual non-monogamy. There's a stereotype out there in the media that this is the stuff of young, white, wealthy liberals. But what's the truth there? What do we know about the demographics of consensual non-monogamists? Right. And so to help understand, like, is there a profile or is there a certain type of person who engages in consensual non-monogamy? My colleagues and I at the Kinsey Institute conducted two different nationally representative surveys of people in the U.S. And we asked them about their identities and their personal characteristics. So things like their religion, what political party they're affiliated with, what's their income level. And then we also asked them whether or not they had engaged in some form of consensually non-monogamous relationships. So we gave them a clear definition so they understood what we were talking about and we were not talking about cheating. And what we found was that people who had engaged in consensual non-monogamy and those who had not really didn't differ from each other. There were no differences on the 
person's age, their political affiliation, religion, race, ethnicity, education level, the geographic region that they lived in in the U.S., or their income level. And so people from across political lines, old, young, atheists, Christians, Buddhists, they were all engaging in consensual non-monogamy at equal rates. We did find one clear difference was that people who identified as lesbian, gay, and bisexual are about three times more likely to have engaged in consensual non-monogamy at some point during their life compared to people who are straight. So interest in consensual non-monogamy is something that doesn't really seem to be dictated by our demographic backgrounds. But one of the things I'm curious about is whether people might be drawn to different kinds of consensual non-monogamy based on certain factors. So one example of this would be, you know, I live in Indiana, which is a pretty conservative state. There are lots of people who practice consensual non-monogamy here, but a lot of it takes the form of swinging. And that's kind of the predominant form that you often see in more conservative areas. But in other parts of the country, in more liberal areas, what I've kind of seen is that people tend to practice polyamory and some of these other forms of consensual non-monogamy there. So did you find that there's any variation in what kinds of consensual non-monogamy people were drawn to based on their demographics? Yeah, that's such a good question. And unfortunately, at this state in the science, we have no idea. That study that I was telling you about from 2017 was actually the first of its kind. I think anywhere, let alone the U.S., to even capture prevalence, which is interesting because the U.S. loves polling and we know things about everything, like how many people own red cars, but we didn't know what types of intimate relationships people were in. And so I hope in some of my future work, and especially at the nationally representative level with surveys, we start to understand, you know, are there these differences based on the type of non-monogamy people practice? And then also starting to track people's desire and engagement over time. We don't even know if it's increasing, decreasing, or staying the same. Yeah, you know, that's a question I get asked about by journalists all the time is, are people practicing consensual non-monogamy today more than they were in the past? And it's like, you know, we don't actually know the answer because that hasn't been routinely asked about on the nationally representative sex surveys that have been done. And, you know, in the past... There's some data that's been used to try and speak to this, but it considered basically all forms of non-monogamy, whether it was cheating and infidelity or being in some kind of open relationship, they considered it to be the same. So we just don't have any great historical data points on that. Right. Another misconception is that consensual non-monogamy is something people only try when an attempt at monogamy has failed. So in other words, they see opening the relationship in some way as this last-ditch effort of saving the relationship. Now, certainly that can happen. I mean, I even know some people who have done that. And it hasn't worked out so well because when people are looking at this as a fix, there are usually bigger problems in the relationship. It works out about as well as when people decide to have a baby to save their relationship. You know, if you have these big fundamental problems, that kind of stuff probably isn't a great idea. But anyway, what do we know about the main reasons why people pursue consensual non-monogamy? Yeah. So last year, Jessica Wood and colleagues did a really interesting study where they asked 540 people who were engaged in consensual non-monogamy, what were your reasons for doing so? So like, what was the motivation for you to open up your relationship or choose this type of relationship? Wood and colleagues identified six different themes as to 
common patterns of responses of these motivations. And not one of those themes were related to fixing the relationship. So it's not a common response. Some of the reasons that they identified was this idea that monogamy was too rigid or traditional or patriarchal. Other motivations were practical things, like they were in a long-distance relationship, so it seemed pragmatic to open up the relationship and date other people. Other reasons were about building a sense of community, nourishing the growth of themselves or their partners. And then the six theme was this idea of being able to explore one's sexual desires and having these new erotic experiences and non-monogamy was the motive for that. Only a couple of people said things that might have been related to fixing their relationship, but they were more along the lines of they didn't want to lose their partner, so that's why they were engaging in non-monogamy. And so it's unclear what that motive was, but they did say things like that. And again, it was just a handful of people out of these 540 people. Yeah, so it sounds like there is a very diverse set of motivations when it comes to consensual non-monogamy. And it's not just about, this is a broken relationship and we need to fix it. Like, as I said, that can happen, but that's not the path that we see most people here are taking. And I think what you said in terms of the motivations also gets at another common misconception. This isn't one from your paper, but it's something that I've heard many people say, which is that they seem to think that consensual non-monogamy is just all about the sex, right? And it's just having access to more sexual partners. But that's not the only reason that pops up. And in fact, that's not the most important reason to a lot of people. You know, people get more out of consensual non-monogamy than just sexual gratification, right? Right. And I actually did a study just about that. <laughs> As in, what are the benefits of consensual non-monogamy? So like, why are people doing this? And I asked 175 people, what are the benefits of non-monogamy for you? And then I also asked a similar group of people, about 200 people in monogamous relationships, what are the benefits of monogamy? And it turns out most people had the same benefits. It was like companionship and trust and love and friendship and financial stability and sex benefits. So it's not like people engaged in non-monogamy were saying sexy things at a higher rate than people who are engaged in monogamy. But then there were a bunch of unique things about consensual non-monogamy that they mentioned were benefits of their relationship that not a single person in monogamous relationships mentioned. So things like personal growth and getting their needs met from multiple people and not feeling the pressure to meet all of one's needs and be that sole source of relationship quality and stability. And then a bunch of people engaged in consensual non-monogamy were saying a benefit of their relationship was activity variety and it wasn't sexual. So it was things like, I have a full social calendar. I have a robust network of friends. I have different partners that I get to do different things with. And it got very specific, like going to the opera, <laughs> playing D&D, like all of these very, very specific things that it was a benefit of their relationship structure that no one in a monogamous relationship said. And it's not to say that people in monogamous relationships don't experience activity variety or personal growth, but it's not top of mind when they're asked, what's the benefit of their relationship? Yeah, and I think that's such an important point because it's often the case that two people in a relationship are going to have some interests that are different. And sometimes that interest that you have that your partner doesn't share is really important to you. I don't know, maybe you're a gamer. Maybe you really like jogging. I hate jogging. Like <laughs> running is not for me. Um, oh, but, same. You know, <laughs> but you can imagine how you know somebody might want to have a partner where they can engage in these different activities with them. 
and it creates that diversified need fulfillment. So again, it's about so much more than just sexual fulfillment. Absolutely. Now, something related to this misconception we were just discussing is that, you know, I hear people say time and again that open relationships never work or that they can't work. And the people who say this seem to think that if you have more than one intimate relationship, that something will get lost. There won't be enough love to go around and conflict and jealousy will inevitably ensue. So what's the truth there? Right. Yeah, we seem to be fine with this idea in our society and in our science that you can love multiple friends and family members. Like it's never ending love. Like if someone told me that they loved three best friends, like I wouldn't like be struck with moral disgust. I'd be like, wow, that's great. <laughs> but in our, you know, society, you're speaking of this zero sum allotment for romantic love that you can only love one person. And if you love more than one person in a romantic capacity, that something must be wrong with you or your relationship. And to understand, you know, did people engaged in monogamy and do people engaged in consensual non-monogamy differ on love or relationship quality? My colleagues and I conducted one of the largest comparative studies to date. So we asked more than 2,100 people engaged in both monogamous and non-monogamous relationships to fill out almost a dozen different measures of relationship quality. So these are very common and validated ways that relationship scientists ask people to self-report on how much love they have for a partner, how trusting do they feel in their relationship, how much commitment, sexual satisfaction, and things like that. And we found that there were actually no differences among people who were in monogamous and consensually non-monogamous relationships on the reported amount of love that they felt for their partner. We also found no difference in how much commitment they felt in their relationship or their satisfaction with their relationship. But we did find a couple of differences. We found that people engaged in consensually non-monogamous relationships reported higher levels of trust and then higher levels of sexual satisfaction. And then we found one really big difference. And in the field of psychology, we look at kind of the magnitude of the difference and if it's a small effect or if it's a large effect. And this was a large effect, meaning the difference between the two groups was very big. And people engaged in monogamous relationships reported very high levels of jealousy in terms of cognitive attitudes, like I worry my partner's going to leave me or I feel jealous. And then they also reported really high levels of jealous behaviors. Things like I go through my partner's phone to see if they're cheating on me. I interrogate my partner where they are when they're not with me. Where people engaged in consensually non-monogamous relationships reported very low levels of both of these different types of jealousy. So it sounds like on average, people seem to find monogamous and consensually non-monogamous relationships to be highly satisfying, right? So right. these relationships can work, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that they both can work, but they can both have lots of problems, right? So mm -hmm. sometimes when people talk about polyamory in the media, they kind of present it in this very utopian way where it seems like everything is perfect and there's never any jealousy or <laughs> any problems yeah, whatsoever. Like you've reached the, the peak of Maslow's hierarchy of needs or something. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I know people who have gotten into it thinking that it was going to be this utopia and it wasn't that for them. So I just think it's always important to acknowledge that sometimes monogamy works out well for people. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes consensual non-monogamy works out well. Sometimes it doesn't. There's always a lot of variability in people's experiences. But I think the key thing is that these relationships can work, but they require a lot of work, just as any relationship requires a lot of work. 
Exactly. Now, yet another misconception is that people who practice consensual non-monogamy are having a lot of unsafe and risky sex, and they're just riddled with STIs. And my own research has challenged this idea. So in one of my studies, I compared rates of STIs for people in monogamous versus consensually non-monogamous relationships and found that there was actually no difference. And those results were surprising to a lot of people especially since the non-monogamists reported having had about twice as many sexual partners as the monogamous individuals. So why do you think this is? Why don't we see a difference in STI rates on average when comparing these groups? Right. I think a lot of it comes down to the ways in which people are communicating about their sexual health. Um, In some of my qualitative work, I asked people, how are they talking about and navigating their sexual health with their partners when they have multiple partners? And so I asked people engaged in consensual non-monogamy. And some of the responses, granted, this was like a decade ago and I was, you know, a really young student, but they blew my mind. People were like, I carry around a PDF copy in my phone of my recent STI screening results. And I share that with my partner so they can visibly see it. And I ask for the same. Or they'll say, if you know someone had had a new sexual partner since their last STI screening, they might make a date out of it and go to the clinic together and get screening and then you know wait to engage in sex before then. Some of my work in 2012 also found that people engaged in consensual non-monogamy are more likely to consistently and correctly use barrier methods. It's one thing to consistently always use a condom for vaginal or anal or oral sex. And then it's another thing to correctly use it to make sure that you're not like turning it in inside out and then putting it back on and, you know, all of these different things are using an incorrect type of lube that could increase the chance of breakage. And so I think it's part communication and then part just really adhering to this script of how you're going to manage your sexual health, because you're going to be accountable to a network of people that you're having sex with. And I think everything that you said there is spot on. But one other piece that's important here is that for people who are monogamous, we know that infidelity is not an uncommon occurrence. You know, studies are all over the place in trying to pinpoint the prevalence of infidelity. And it depends on how you define it. But if you look at sexual infidelity specifically, somewhere around one in five married couples will report infidelity at some point in their relationship. And the important thing here in terms of sexual health is that when somebody goes out and cheats and they're in a monogamous relationship, they don't tell their partner about it when they come home. And they also don't change their sexual practices. So if they were having unprotected sex with their partner before, they're going to come home and keep having unprotected sex with their partner without disclosing to them that anything else happened, right? And so that's where monogamy, in theory, should protect you from STIs. But in practice, when you throw in infidelity and this lack of communication, infidelity then actually becomes this very high-risk behavior for STI transmission. Right. Absolutely. And in one study, I have an idea of how many people are actually telling their partners or not. Over 80% of people engaged in consensual non-monogamy inform their partner that they had sex with someone else. And it's probably not 100% because it depends on people's agreements. And then also cheating can still happen in consensual non-monogamy. But less than 30% of people who say that they're in a monogamous relationship, but they're cheating on their partner, informed their 
ostensibly monogamous partner that they had sex with someone else. So just as you're speaking of, there's this person and their sexual health is in jeopardy and they're completely unaware. And I'm not sure if the average physician is screening for that or just doing routine STI testing. Let's say when someone who is, you know, has a vulva is going in for a pap smear. I don't know if that's part of standard protocol. Yeah. And so Something that does happen in the world of healthcare is that many doctors, physicians will make the assumption that just because a patient is married, that they're monogamous. And so they might not even address sexual health issues at all because they might not think that they have any concern warranted when it comes to something like STIs. And so that's where it's important for healthcare providers to check their biases to make sure that they're taking optimal care of their patient's health. Yes, it's also important for patients to be honest and forthcoming about what their sexual health needs are, but you need to have that open communication about sexual activity and practices on both sides of the table in those healthcare settings because all too often things go unaddressed. Indeed. Now, one final misconception is that consensual non-monogamists are unfit parents, right? Their kids are not going to be all right. So what's the truth there? Uh, Well, Eli Sheff has figured this out over time. Eli Sheff is a sociologist by training, and since 1997, she has been studying parents who engage in polyamory and other forms of consensual non-monogamy and their children. And so she takes a different approach typically than you and I take in our research, and she interviews people. Sometimes she'll, you know, stay with them for hours or maybe even like live with them for a bit and get a different sense of their daily lives and maybe asking surveys or just a, you know, a one hour interview. And so since 1997 and in her book, The Polyamorous Next Door, she talks about 175 parents that she's followed over time. And what she found was that parents are actually expressing and saying that they have numerous benefits of their family relationship and agreements. So they have role models for their children. They've had more personal time. A lot of parents had kids with special needs and then they, they felt a lot more support. So that's coming from the parents' perspective. They're receiving a lot of benefits. Eli also interviews these kids and across their kids' lifespan too, and has found that especially young kids, they really love having multiple adults around, which I just find <laughs> precious, you know? They're like, oh my gosh, and you know, Bob comes over and we jump on the trampoline and like, you know, like Ricky loves bugs and like, they just love that these adults are in their life and can drive them places and they feel cared for. And, you know, they're having food and like gifts and and they're getting exposed to different hobbies and activities. And they just really adore this adult attention. And Eli Chef also finds, you know, as time goes on, the kids start to become more self-aware that their parents are doing something that is considered non-traditional in society. And they express concerns of being afraid of stigma or discrimination. And they've talked with their parents often openly about who is safe to disclose their relationship agreement to at work or school and different things like that. But for the most part, that idea that they're experiencing worry or anticipated rejection and stigma and discrimination, it's based on a societal expectation. It's not that their parents are unfit parents. They're not feeling stigma or discrimination or, you know, feeling like their parents aren't taking care of them well. It's more the negative feelings that they're experiencing have nothing to do with the relationship that their parents are having in and of itself. 
Yeah, so interesting. And Eli was a former guest on the podcast a while back. We talked all about their work on polyamory. So if you want to learn more about that, scroll back a few episodes because I don't remember off the top of my head which one it was in, but it was a little while back. So Amy, we've talked about a lot of different misconceptions about consensual non-monogamy today. Anything else you want to clear up for us? Oh, gosh, so many things, but I'll keep it short. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Another misconception that I'll write about at some future point is this idea that we expect when we are seeking mental health care that our provider is going to be affirming of our sexuality and our type of relationship. And unfortunately, some of the research that I've shown is that's not the case, that about one out of 13 therapists will tell people engaged in consensual non-monogamy that they should renounce their relationship because it's bad, sick, or immoral. And so a lot of the work that I try to do, especially through the American Psychological Association's Division 44 Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy, is education for therapists and mental health providers that's evidence-based and, you know, trying to figure out different ways in which we can train therapists to be more affirming of non-monogamy. And so if anyone's listening and they want to go on this journey or they're in the process of opening up their relationship or, you know, they just want to find a a therapist that's affirming, it's really important to screen ahead of time to see if that therapist has familiarity, has clients, uh, what's their stance instead of just assuming that their therapist is going to be able to provide them the affirming care that they're seeking. It's such an important point. And I think it's true for people going and seeking any type of therapy or mental health counseling is to make sure that the person who's going to be working with you is a good fit for you and do your research beforehand, see what their credentials are, and also feel free to interview them a bit to make sure that they're somebody that you would be comfortable working with and that they have knowledge in the particular area where you need help. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Sure thing. I have a website. It is my name, amycmores.com. I post all of my journal articles for free access when I'm not violating copyright because I don't like there to be a barrier between science and the general public. Um, you can also find me on lots of other podcasts and things. And one day I, in the near future, I really hope to do a TED Talk and maybe you'll see me talk about five misconceptions on the big stage. I would love to see that. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 